It's a joyous day, Easter afternoon here for us, a joyous celebration for us as Christians. So let me just try something here at the beginning, some congregation participation with me. Now, I always hated class participation in school. Actually, I, I was... Uh, uh, they, they lowered my grade, essentially, because I didn't participate in the class in college that was, I think, 10% of the grade was uh, class participation. I remember the last day they turned to me like, Scott, you got to talk. Uh, okay. Uh, so congregation participation here. I'm going to say he is risen, and you respond by saying he is risen indeed. So let's try this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Very good. Let's try it one more time. One more time. Just a little more gusto, maybe. He is risen. Amen, amen. All right, Luke 24, please hear this public reading of God's Word, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Easter. We are thankful for a beautiful day today, and we're thankful for this Easter afternoon where we can gather together and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And Father, I pray for all the Christians here today that we would be strengthened in our faith as we examine this passage on the resurrection of Jesus. We would be bolstered in our faith. And Father, if there are any here who do not yet know you in a saving way, I pray that they would uh, realize the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus and you would open their eyes to the beauty and the glory of Jesus and you would cause their hearts to burn within them even today as the gospel is pressed to them. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have five points, five points of emphasis that we will look at in my sermon today. The first one, we're going to look at these committed, devoted women is the first point that we're going to look at, committed, devoted women. And in order to get the context, I want to go back to the end of chapter 23 and look at the last two verses of chapter 23, verses 55 and 56 of Luke 23. Joseph of Arimathea has come and taken the body, laid him in a tomb where no one's been laid before. And here we are, chapter 23, verse 55 The women who had come with him, with Joseph of Arimathea, from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandments. So the context is Jesus has died. Joseph of Arimathea comes, takes the body, lays him in this tomb where no one has ever been laid. These women, committed followers of Jesus, they go, they follow Joseph, they see the tomb where Jesus was laid, and they go home. And then they prepare ointments and spices. And then on the Sabbath, it says they rested according to the commandments. So they are resting on Saturday, waiting anxiously for Sunday to get there. And then we come into Luke 24. It is Resurrection Sunday. Finally has come. Verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So it is Resurrection Sunday has begun, but it doesn't begin with joy for these women. These women are mourning. They are sorrowful. But the picture we have of these women is they are sort of just chomping at the bit. They cannot wait to go. It is the crack of dawn. They have waited all day, a long day Saturday. As soon as Sunday morning hits, at the break of day, crack of dawn, they race to the tomb. And in their excitement to get to the tomb, I think they maybe haven't thought all the details out. And we know from Mark's gospel that as they're going, they say to each other, who's going to roll the stone away for us? They maybe haven't thought everything through. They're on the way. They're thinking there's this giant stone there. Who's going to roll the stone out of the way? One pastor said these women were in need of some strong, brave men to help them. But the strong, brave men were nowhere to be found. The men are cowering behind and sorrowful behind And you have the strong, prepared, active, committed, devoted women are heading to the tomb at the crack of dawn. And when they get to the tomb, there's going to be three surprising things that greet them at the tomb. First one in in verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The first surprise, they're wondering who's going to roll this massive stone away. They get there, the stone's already been moved out of the way, and they're thinking, whoa, this is not what we expected. So I'm sure they're kind of stopped in their tracks. The tomb 
has been rolled away. The stone has been rolled from the tomb. The first surprise. Second surprise, verse 3. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Second surprise, and this is the really important fact. The body of Jesus is nowhere to be found. No body of Jesus anywhere. That's the second surprising thing that greets them at the tomb. And at the beginning of verse 4 says, while they were perplexed about this. You can imagine them being utterly perplexed by this. They've come. The stone isn't there. The stone's been rolled. They're stopping their tracks. Then they decide, we'll go in anyway. And they go in. All these ointment and spices they've got in hand. They look inside. There's no body of Jesus anywhere. They're probably feeling a little bit silly holding all these ointments, all these spices. No body of Jesus anywhere. They're utterly perplexed by this. And all of a sudden, the third surprise, two angels show up. Again, verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So two angels show up is the third surprising thing, dazzling apparel. You can imagine that they're going to be frightened. All of us would have been frightened. Here they are, verse 5, it says, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? You see, God graciously sends these two angels to the tomb to, number one, rebuke these women, but number two, to impart privileged information to these women. But they begin with this rebuke, with this question at the end of verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? If you're looking for a living person, you're not going to go to a cemetery. That's the idea. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, of course, they weren't seeking the living among the dead. They're assuming Jesus is dead. That's why they're there. That's why they have these ointments and spices. They're there to anoint the body of Jesus. They're there to sort of pack this whole thing up. They're going to fold this whole thing up. They're going to move their lives on from Jesus. Jesus has died. They're grieving, and they're going to move on. So they're not looking for, they think Jesus is dead, but the angels rebuke them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Secondly, they say, verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Point two of my sermon, which is the main point, Jesus has risen from the grave. This is the big point, I think, that Luke is driving home through all these verses, that Jesus has risen from the grave, all the way through this passage. That's the big point. Jesus is risen from the grave. You see, death couldn't possibly hold the Lord Jesus. One pastor used this illustration. He said, say you have a light bulb. Say it's a 100-watt light bulb, or it's 120 volts, 100-watt, 120 volts. He said, say you take 10,000 volts, and you push 10,000 volts into this 120-volt light bulb. That light bulb is not going to hold those volts. It's going to break this light bulb. And he said, death is sort of like a 120-volt light bulb, and Jesus is like 10 million volts coming at that light bulb, and Jesus will break the bonds of death. Death couldn't possibly hold the Lord Jesus. Jesus has defeated death. He's conquered death. And so God sends these angels to say, Jesus is alive, to impart this privileged information, this privileged good news that Jesus has risen from the grave. And then the angels tell them to remember something. Again, verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. So they are to use their memories. They are to remember. What a gift it is to have a memory. What a gift it is to be able to remember. And these angels say, remember. Think back to what Jesus said to you. And he said this on many occasions, but he said three basic things they want them to remember. Number one, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. That's exactly what happened. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men. Number two, and be crucified. That's exactly what happened on Friday. He was crucified. And then number three, and on the third day, rise. Remember those three things, how he told you those three things. And these women now remember 
the words of Jesus, and everything, all this confusion, all this fog, they were perplexed about it, but now they interpret the empty tomb in light of Jesus' words, and the fog gets blown away, and there's clarity now. It all begins to make sense. One commentator said, like, tumblers on a lock begin to fall right into places. They begin to make sense of the empty tomb as they remember the words of Jesus. It's all becoming clear. So they remember the words of Jesus. Alistair Begg said, and now they're going to return, and then they're going to relay this information. So belief in the resurrection immediately turns into proclamation of the resurrection, proclamation of the good news. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. It all made sense. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So belief leads to announcement. One commentator said, what an illustrious congregation they had to proclaim this good news to the eleven and all the rest. An incredible congregation. And they come probably with excitement and joy. They relay this news to this illustrious congregation. And what's the response from this incredible congregation? Verse 11, but these words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Talk about pouring sort of cold ice water onto these women's joy. They just dump this cold ice water on them. Do not believe it. They view it as nonsense. This is an idle tale. This is nonsense. Again, to quote Alistair Begg, he said, do we have here in the apostles a group of men poised on the brink of belief, needing only the shadow of an excuse to launch themselves forth into the Jerusalem streets proclaiming the resurrection? Is that what we have here? No, we have here a group of complete skeptics, totally unwilling to accept the women's report they're just prepared to dismiss this as nonsense. But look at Peter's response in verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. We shouldn't be surprised at all that Peter took off running, racing to the tomb. Why isn't it surprising that Peter took off? Well, very likely the last time that Peter locked eyes with Jesus was when Peter was outside warming himself by the fire, and he denied Jesus three times. In Matthew's gospel, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself, and he begins to swear. Luke's gospel says Jesus looks at him, locks eyes with him, and I am sure that look was a look of love from Jesus, and that look of love melts Peter down, and he races out. He weeps bitterly. That is the last time that Peter has locked eyes with Jesus, very likely, and now Peter hears Jesus has risen from the grave, and he takes off. He bolts to the tomb. Why? Because he's thinking, if Jesus has risen, that means there's hope. Perhaps there's hope for even me who denied him three times. I'm going to race to the tomb and check it out. And he leaves marveling. He doesn't yet believe, but he leaves marveling, trying to put it all together, trying to make sense that the tomb is empty. So what is some application of these first 12 verses? Well, I think a big application point for us as Christians is that when we study the resurrection of Jesus, this should bolster and strengthen our faith. We should be strengthened in our faith because the truth, the fingerprints of truthfulness are all over this passage. We should be strengthened in our faith. So let me just, some apologetics briefly on this. Pretty much everyone agrees across the board, everyone pretty much agrees that the tomb of Jesus was found empty by a group of his women followers on early Easter morning. That's pretty much agreed across the board. And the question is, how do we make sense of that historical fact? How do we make sense of that? Tomb is found empty, okay? That's the historical fact. 
How can you explain that? Well, basically, there's only three possible explanations for the tomb being empty. Now, there are some ridiculous theories over here. And I mentioned one a few years ago from 1 Corinthians 15, the swoon theory that says that Jesus merely fainted on the cross. Ridiculous theory. And then Jesus wasn't dead and he's in the tomb and he's bled all over the place. And somehow he pushes that giant stone and then tiptoes by the guards and appears and says, I've resurrected. Okay, that's nonsense. Reject that. Well, here's another one crazier than that one. Okay, Alistair Begg mentioned this one. This theory states that not only did Jesus not die on the cross, but neither did the two criminals next to Jesus. That's what this theory states. It came out, I think, in 1992. Okay, big, huge problems at the very beginning of this theory. Okay, the Romans were experts at crucifixion. They knew when somebody was dead, and we know that they come and with mallets and break the legs of the two criminals next to Jesus so that they cannot lean up to breathe, to hasten their death. They break their legs, and then they come to Jesus in the middle, and they are surprised that he's already dead. And they just take him off the cross, assuming he's dead? No, they take a spear, they thrust it into his side, pull it out, basically piercing his heart. Blood and water come out of Jesus. He is dead. So already this theory has major problems, but we'll keep going with it because it gets better, okay? All of these three are taken down, and they are put into the same tomb, according to this theory. And this theory states that one of these criminals was actually also a doctor, okay? Remember, his legs have been broken, okay? And this, I was laughing like crazy. Alistair Begg told it. I la- told Liliana, I was laughing again. Okay, he's a doctor. Well, legs have been broken. It's dark in the tomb, and somehow, in this dark tomb, he's crawling around with broken legs, and he's able to whip up some medicine. I'm not kidding. This is the theory. He whips up some medicine really quick, gives it to Jesus. Jesus is back on his feet, and he's able to push again the stone out of the way and continue his ministry. That is utter nonsense. Now, Alistair Begg says, sadly, people will drink that theory up with their morning orange juice, and they will turn to Christians and mock us for believing in the resurrection. Well, we got to get rid of those theories as nonsense. Come back to three possible explanations for the empty tomb. Number one, first option, the Pharisees stole the body is the first option, okay? Pharisees stole the body. Well, the problem with that is as soon as Christianity began to emerge on the scene, all the Pharisees had to do was present the body of Jesus, and Christianity is squashed. It's over. It's done. But they never presented the body because they never had the body, okay? So you can X off that one. Number two, the disciples stole the body. Well, when you come to Luke 24 and you look at these men, do these men look like they're ready to go and steal the body of Jesus? No, they don't even believe the women when the women come and say Jesus has risen from the grave. Secondly, had they stolen the body, would almost all of them die horrible deaths for a lie? There's no way. Blaise Pascal said this, and Mark quoted this a few years ago at his Easter sermon. Blaise Pascal said, I tend to believe the witnesses who are willing to get their throats cut for what they claim to have seen. So that leaves us with option three, which is Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. That's the only possible option we can come to. Why did Christianity emerge? Why did it take the shape it did? Because of the fact of the resurrection. So when we come to the resurrection account, this should strengthen our faith. Jesus did rise from the grave. That means that we as Christians, we are no longer still in our sins. We really are covered in the blood of Jesus. We are, really are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We really are today, one day, closer to heaven than we were yesterday. We've never been this close to heaven. We've never been this close to seeing Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It is true. It is real. We should be strengthened in our faith. Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave, so we should be strengthened in our faith. If you're not a Christian, I would say examine the resurrection of Jesus. See if he has been raised from the grave. 
And when you see that he has been raised from the grave, realize that you are in desperate need of a Savior, and he is the Savior of the world, and turn from sin and rest in his finished work, and you will be forgiven and have new life in him. So the third thing we see in this passage is two discouraged, downcast followers of Jesus, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So you have these two followers of Jesus. They perhaps are passionately discussing these things that have happened. All of a sudden, there's footsteps behind them, gaining on them, and all of a sudden, Jesus is walking with them. And it says their eyes are kept from recognizing Jesus. We don't know. Some people guess he had his face covered. We don't know. All we can say is that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. God hides his identity. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. You have here a picture again of these two downcast followers of Jesus. They are saddened. They think Jesus has died. They are downcast and sad. Verse 18, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Basically, they're saying, look, we're talking about what everybody, literally everybody is talking about Jesus. Are you the only one who doesn't know about these things? There's thick irony in this because obviously Jesus knows about these things because these things happened to Jesus. One commentator said, on the ironic journey to Emmaus, living disciples talk about a dead Jesus while a living Jesus speaks with lifeless disciples. And so Jesus is going to respond. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, what things? R.C. Sproul said it's glad, he was glad to see Jesus still has his sense of humor. He says, what things? Probably said it with a twinkle in his eye. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Verse 20, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, they say, we had hoped. Past tense, we had hope. They seem to have lost their hope. They are downcast. They have lost hope. We have lost hope. We had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see, they have underestimated the cost of redemption. They've underestimated the cost of redemption. They did not understand that God was going to come in the flesh, shed his own blood for the redemption of his people. They were looking for a temporal redemption of the Jews by a conqueror. A spiritual redemption by a sacrificial death was an idea which their minds could not thoroughly take in. So again, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So again, these, these two, they're downcast. They have just witnessed the most wonderful events in all of the history of God's dealings with his people, and they are depressed. They are depressed. They've lost hope. And so Jesus rebukes them, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus says, you guys have been maybe reading your Old Testament a lot, but you haven't been reading them properly. You haven't been reading your Bibles properly. Again, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And we get to this incredible verse, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which just leads me into point number four. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. Almost everybody that I read said they would have loved to go back in time and travel this road with these two followers of Jesus and have Jesus open up the scriptures to them. I mean, can you imagine the Word of God incarnate opening up the Word of God written, opening up the Old Testament scriptures, how it all points to Jesus, how incredible that must have been. One pastor said this is the best small group Bible study ever. It must have been the best small group Bible study ever. And I just found this interesting. You would have thought that Jesus would have simply revealed himself to them. They're downcast, and he could have just showed the scars in his hands, immediately revealed himself to them, but he doesn't. And this was interesting. Rather than pointing to his resurrection body, first of all, Jesus pointed to the scriptures that pointed to himself. I should have imagined that the risen Lord would be independent of the Bible, but no, he cleaves to the Bible with all the old affection. He came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. I just love that. He puts their noses in the Bible, hastens to the holy book, and from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus opens up the scriptures to these men. How full the Old Testament is of Christ. How full it is of Christ. So the question is, where did he go? People have guessed. It was probably a couple-hour journey. Where did he go? Well, he could have gone all over the place. The Old Testament is filled with Christ, but where did he go? Here's some possible places he could have gone. He could have started. Many people think he started with Genesis 3, 15. We sang about it just a little bit ago. It says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And maybe right there he talked about how many people have said that's the oak tree of the gospel in acorn form, and he began to unpack the gospel from Genesis 3.15, and then maybe he went to Genesis 6-8 to and Noah and the flood, and maybe he pointed out the fact that Jesus is the true Noah's ark, and all who enter into Jesus pass through the waters of divine judgment. You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from the waters of judgment if you enter into Jesus by faith in Jesus. And I think he went to Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Can you imagine Jesus talking about Genesis 22 in front of you? Take your son, your only son, the son you love, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And Isaac has, has the wood, and he's going up, and he's looking around, and there's no lamb. Where's the lamb offering? Where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide my son. And Abraham straps him down on the altar the son he loves, and he takes the knife in hand, and he raises it high above his son to bring it down and kill his son. And the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. You haven't withheld your son. And imagine Jesus saying, you see, Isaac is pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was strapped to another piece of wood on Friday, and the knife of God's judgment came down on God's son, the Lord Jesus. Nobody cried stop, and God crushed his son at Calvary. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, and all those who turn and trust in him are saved. And he must have gone to Exodus chapter 12, to the Passover, where you take a lamb without spot or blemish. I can still remember Mark's sermon on Exodus 12. You take that lamb, 
without spot or blemish, and they would grow attached to this lamb for a while, and they would have to kill the lamb, and the, the blood of the lamb would go fill the basin, the life leaving this spotless, innocent lamb, and they would take the blood, and they would cover the doors, the side and the top of the door, and the angel of death sees the blood, and the angel of death passes over, and Jesus would say, Jesus is the true lamb of God without spot or blemish. He is the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone who hides in his shed blood is forgiven, and the wrath of God passes over them. And maybe he went to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement ritual, the two goats, one whose blood is shed to cleanse the sanctuary. And then they have that live one. You remember how the high priest puts his hands down on the head of the live goat? He confesses Israel's iniquities over this goat. He transfers them to this goat. And this goat wanders away into the wilderness, carrying away the sins of Israel. And Jesus is the true goat there in that picture whose sins were laid on him and he takes the sins of his people away and then you would think he would go to Isaiah 53 he must have gone to Isaiah 53 and explained how the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the sin bearing savior of Calvary and these guys must have been blown away as Jesus unpacks this must have been staggering and stunning time there the time must have flown by those two hours flown by what we see there and are reminded is that the proclamation of the word is necessary to understand the word. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Let me just pause right there. Jesus wasn't pretending like he was going farther. Jesus is actually going to keep going. He has other places to go, other people to see, so he would have kept going. But they urged him, verse 29, I love this, but they urged him, strong word, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. It's beautiful. They urged Jesus to stay. Some application just on this point of urging Jesus to stay. Are we drawn to Jesus the way these disciples were drawn to him? These disciples wanted to feel his joy. They wanted to listen to his teaching. If ever there is someone you should invite to stay a little longer, it is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is a guest worth pressing. He's a guest worth pressing. Some questions, do we linger longer with him in prayer? Do we linger longer over the word of God? Or are we always rushing off to do the next thing? We should remember Jesus is a guest worth pressing. Another pastor said, Jesus is never going to leave the prayer time before you do. He's a guest worth pressing. And then verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They give him the place of honor at the table. He takes the bread and breaks it. Many people have guessed that when he broke the bread, they saw the nail prints in his hands, possibly. But now God opens their eyes to who Jesus is. I think that's for sure what happened. But maybe they saw the nail prints, and their eyes are open to who Jesus is. And as soon as they recognize him, into verse 31, and he vanished from their sight. So he's gone as soon as they recognize him. One commentator said, Jesus' resurrected body is a spiritually transformed body, no longer subject to physical properties alone. His body defies the tomb, disappears, reappears, and impresses his father, followers with ghost-like qualities. And now we come to verse 32. I love this verse. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And this leads to my final fifth point 
final point of the sermon is this. You see, they began the day with burdened hearts, but they met Jesus on the way, and their burdened hearts become burning hearts, and ultimately becomes transformed lives. So burdened hearts become burning hearts, which leads to transformed lives. Again, I'll read verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Alistair Begg said it probably started with their ears started getting warm, and then their faces started getting flushed, and they're just like, wow, it all is beginning to make sense. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It makes sense. Psalm 22 makes sense. Isaiah 53 makes sense. There's a rising medley in their hearts that it's true. The gospel is true, and little by little, they're beginning to see it. The Spirit of God had pierced their souls and hearts. Their hearts were on fire with exhilarating joy that was overwhelming them. Scripture is true. Jesus is the Messiah. This was the plan. He's alive. One pastor said God was burning the gospel into their hearts so they could see Jesus in all the scriptures. This experience was so intense that they said it was like being on fire. And I would just jump off of this and just say this. One possible sign that someone has been genuinely converted is a burning heart or exhilarating joy over the gospel and over the word of God. One sign that someone has likely been converted, burning heart, exhilarating joy over the gospel and over the word of God. You see, I mentioned my story many times, but briefly I would just say uh, I was a nominal Christian, but I had my Bible with me pretty much every week in my car. I had my Bible put in the back seat of my car. Church would come Sunday, grab my Bible out of the back seat, go into church, open it up, follow the passage, and then put it in the back seat. Wouldn't touch it again. You see, the Bible was dull. It was boring. It was lifeless to me as a non-Christian. But when I was converted, there was a burning in my heart. There was exhilarating joy over the gospel and over the word of God. That happened to me. A famous example of this is from church history is John Wesley. Many of you probably know his conversion, but John Wesley came to Georgia, actually, when it was the colonies. He was coming from London, came to Georgia as a missionary, and he was going to come and proclaim the gospel essentially here as a missionary, and he famously said, I went to the colonies to convert the Indians, but who was going to convert me? You see, he was a nominal Christian, and he is out proclaiming the gospel as a nominal Christian. He returns home. He leaves the United States. He would never return again, and on his return journey back home, there was a violent storm on the boat, and there were Moravian Christians who remained totally calm in this storm, and John Wesley realized they possessed something that he didn't have. They had saving faith. He didn't have. He had sort of a sunny day faith, and as soon as a trial came in, his faith was crushed down to nothing, and he returned to London, realizing he's not a Christian, burdened by the weight of his sins, longing to be free from his sins, and it was months of time where he's feeling down, discouraged, longing to be free from this, His brother Charles Wesley was converted 10 days before he was, and then 10 days later, he goes, in his words, very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Now we know, or it's guessed who this man was who was reading it. It's likely this man's name was William Holland. William Holland had been converted seven days previous to this, reading Luther's preface. So one of the biographers said that William Holland was likely reading this with joy, excitement, perhaps even tears over what he was reading. He's reading Martin Luther, and this is what he was reading. Again, John Wesley. He was reading Luther's description of the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. And John Wesley, you can imagine, is glued to this man reading this. He's longing for saving faith. He's talking about faith in Christ. And it was in that moment, conversion happens, and Wesley famously said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. 
and save me from the law of sin and death. And immediately when the thing is over, they want to go see Charles Wesley, the, the younger brother who had been converted 10 days, prior, 10 days prior. And so some friends of John and John, they race to go see Charles Wesley. Here's what Charles Wesley says about that night. Towards 10, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe we sang the hymn with great joy and parted with prayer. That must have been an incredible night of celebrating the new birth of John Wesley. Phil Riken says this, Your heart will be strangely warmed when you trust Jesus. It will be warmed again every time you open the Bible and see, really see the love and the grace that God has for you in Jesus. In fact, it happens to me almost every week. As I prepare to preach the gospel, I see something new about Jesus or something old about him in a new way and a flame is kindled in my cold heart. How true is that? How true is that? How many times have you had sort of a a down week spiritually and you've come into this room in the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon feeling dry spiritually, feeling cold spiritually? You sit down, Mark stands up and reads the Bible and we begin to sing and something happens, doesn't it? You begin to sing of the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And there's a burning, isn't there? A burning in the heart. As the gospel breaks in, it doesn't matter how many times we hear the gospel as Christians. It has power to bring a flame within to stir us once again. And just a side note, one commentator said, there's no more essential calling that is set before preachers, teachers, indeed the church itself, than to open the scripture so that hearts are set aflame. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. You see, their lives have now been transformed by this news that Jesus has risen from the grave. It was at nighttime. It was likely very dangerous for them to travel these seven miles, and yet this news is so exhilarating. This joy that they have is pulsating through them, and they leave, and they race back. Opposite journeys. The beginning, they were downcast. They lost hope, and now they're racing back with joy with this news. Alistair Begg pictures them saying to each other, you know, who wants to say the news first? Do you want to go first? No, I want to go first. Let's just open the door and say, we've got this great news. He's risen. So they're just, they're going. Sinclair Ferguson said, as they're getting closer to the house, all of a sudden they hear commotion inside. They're looking at each other like, what in the world is this going on? They get closer and closer. There's dancing inside. There's celebration inside. And then they get to the door. Here we are in verse 33. Middle of verse 33, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They beat them to the punch. They're celebrating in there. They open the doors, getting ready to, to say this great news, and they are beaten to the punch. They stole their thunder, and they're just like, What? You see, the news of the resurrection of Jesus had been trickling in all day, and there is great joy amongst them. What an incredible night of sharing the good news. What incredible joy must have been surging through them, heart-warming, soul-stirring, light had shone into their darkness. Jesus had conquered death, and now they know that life is meaningful. And that meaning is found in Jesus, and this hope is built on a fact, and all the apostles now are going to set out to proclaim the resurrection because there was nothing else they can do. The proof was far too compelling. R.C. Sproul asked this question. He said, how 
Can we hear the story of the resurrection with a cold heart? How can we hear it with a cold heart? We should be moved afresh. We should be strengthened in our faith. The gospel is true. Jesus has defeated death. We as Christians, we're no longer still in our sins. Our lives should be marked by joy in light of what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that Jesus has risen, that He has risen indeed. We're thankful that this is a fact, it's a historical fact. Our faith is built on fact. So Father, I pray that we would be genuinely strengthened in our faith. I pray that we would be stirred afresh as we consider this great news that Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave. And Father, again, if there are any here who do not yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you in a saving way, that their hearts would burn within them as the gospel pierces into their lives. And I pray that even now as we sing, that you would be honored by our worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I read our closing passage of Scripture, I just want to give you a moment of silence here to pray even in your own heart about what we've just heard. I cannot imagine that you will hear a clearer presentation of the gospel. And so just take a moment, speak to the Lord about whatever may be on your heart concerning the things of Christ. John chapter 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe Thomas answered him my Lord and my God Jesus said to him have you believed because you have seen me blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Heavenly Father, I, I just want to pray one more time for anyone right now listening. After hearing the gospel so clearly laid out, gloriously true, that death does not get the last word for those who know Jesus. 
that sin does not have the last word for those who turn and trust Jesus. God, I pray right now for anyone in this room, whether nominal Christian or unbeliever outwardly, in this moment, God, I pray that you'd grant the gift of faith and repentance to those who need that right now and that you would renew the heart, show the glory of Jesus, and bring some in this moment savingly home to yourself. Lord, for those of us with family and friends who do not know you, God, help us to be witnesses through the conduct of our lives. Help us to repent when we lose our temper or say a harsh word. And help us to be bold, to speak with humility and truthfulness about your son with no embarrassment because we have the words of eternal life. Thank you, Father, that the tomb is empty, there is news to tell, and that Jesus is risen indeed. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.